0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her
1: Okay, so maybe one of the most iconic figures in church history is a man named Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine. He wrote probably one of the most famous pieces of Christian literature called the Confessions. And the Confessions are a series of prayers, an open prayer that we can kind of read as Augustine is, is speaking to God. And in it, he begins to recall his early days, Augustine, like maybe many of us, was raised in a Well, a semi-Christian home, his mother was a devout believer, but in an early age, he, like many of us, felt that pull to go his own direction. And he went headlong into, you know, just a pretty wild lifestyle of drinking and stealing and sex and all these sort of things. And he's recalling in this series of prayers how God began to work in his life and transform him. And as he's recalling his early years, he confesses this, that he would pray to the Lord this... He said, Lord, give me chastity and self-control, but just not yet. I love the honesty, though. Like, Lord, I want to be yours, but like in five years, ten years, somewhere later on down the line. And I think some of us can associate with this prayer. God, I, I, I love this idea of, of you transforming my life, but like, can we hold off until after X, Y, Z? And he goes on to explain why. He says for I was afraid that you would answer my prayer at once and cure me too soon of my disease of lust which I wished to have satisfied rather than extinguished. In other words, I wanted you to change me and I wanted you to heal me. But I knew deep down that you would. I had this I had this strange feeling that you would actually would answer that prayer and I was afraid of what it would entail. I wanted to be yours, but I wanted like this little portion over here to myself. And it's like the age old story of the Crusaders. Before they would go into battle, they were forced to be baptized and as they would go down in the water to be baptized, they would often hold their hand with their sword above the waters, not allowing the waters to come over their sword and it was symbolic. God, I am yours except the sword and how I use the sword, that's mine. And if we are to be honest, and you're in church this morning, so I hope you are, this is the sort of thing that defines many of our lives as well. We, we, We love the idea of the freedom and the life that Jesus brings and offers in theory, but not so much the means by which he brings life and the means by which he brings freedom. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer would put it, we love the idea of cheap grace, but we do not love the reality of costly grace. It's the kind of grace that calls us to offer to Jesus all of us, our heart, our mind, our body, our time, our resources, our relationships, our dreams, all of it. And so as we see here in the book of Revelation, that compromise that can be found in our lives can actually be found in the church as well. And what I find interesting about the book of Revelation and our study so far it's just how relevant uh, this, these letters are to us today. Once you sort of wade through some of the very distinct first century stuff like pagan rituals and shrines and that sort of thing, you begin to see people just like us. These were churches just like us. Those who are struggling to live into their identity as God's chosen beloved people in a world that is constantly seeking to distort that, that identity. And, and like today, you can find churches like we see so far. You can find churches like Ephesus who are strong in their theology and they're doctrinally sound and everything in their statement of faith is so wildly uh, sound, and yet you come into this church and you're like, this is not the kind of place I, I want to be. It's not warm. It's cold. It's, it's unloving. It's the kind of church that I would never invite my friend to. On the flip side, we also see churches that are warm and loving And caring and doing amazing things in the community. And they throw like the best potlucks around that you could ever imagine. And then when you begin to dig into what they believe, they're doctrinally flimsy. They lack conviction. And that second description is really what we find in the church of Thyatira. This is the church that began to define themselves by tolerance. They began to take on the identity as the tolerant church. They're waving the flag, so to speak, of tolerance. But here's what we need to know. And I hear, here's what I think is very explicit from this passage and from the scriptures. And it's this, that tolerance is not a virtue. If you're taking notes, you probably should write that one down. Because you're going to need to draw from that at some point in your life. Tolerance is not a virtue. In fact, as G.K. Chesterton put it, tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. I don't want to be that person. And what we need to consider this morning is that there are significant holes in our concept today of tolerance in the 21st century. For starters, it's mildly offensive to be a tolerant person because what you're essentially saying is, I am going to tolerate your presence. I, I'll put up with you. In other words, it's a way of saying like, I don't necessarily care about you, and I don't necessarily care about what's best for you, but I suppose you can stand next to me. I will tolerate you. We are tolerant people here. Oh, thank you, I guess. I feel so honored. Also, tolerance is probably one of the most apathetic ways to relate to someone, if you think about it. There are many better ways to relate to people, to serve people, to show compassion to all people, to be earnest, to be involved in the lives of of all people, to be hospitable, to open up our homes and open up our communities to everyone, to desire people's transformation. I mean, the list goes on of all the ways that we could posture ourselves towards our community, but tolerance is just weak. It's passive. It's passive whether people believe that Jesus is the one true Son of God and the only way to salvation is one thing. But I think still today, many would agree, Whether wherever you're coming from religiously, no matter your faith background, many would agree that the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels was a a man and a life well-lived, that it was the sort of person that we would kind of want to model our lives after. But it's interesting to me because there's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of ways that Jesus modeled a, a good life for us. There's a lot of things that could be said about the way that Jesus modeled living. But you just can't say he was a tolerant person. This was a Jesus who confronted, he, he welcomed, he forgave, he drew in those who were on the margins, and yet he confronted destructive things. This is, remember, a Jesus that like made a whip. And then like turned over tables. And probably the the most intolerant thing Jesus ever did was die on the cross for our sins. Thank goodness Jesus was not tolerant. I love you just the way you are. No. I love you this much to lay down my life for you. And what we need to remember is that that Jesus that confronted, that did not model tolerance but something better, is the Jesus that's speaking here to the church and tolerance is not what he is commending the church for. Tolerance is what he's condemning them for. Look with me in verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate. So consider this with me. What if, and I love what ifs because the resurrection opens up a world of possibilities to us. What if God desired something better for us as a church than simply tolerating broken, hurting, and destructive things in our lives and in our community? I'm not saying what if he desired less. I'm just saying what if he desired more? What if if he desired more than tolerance? And what if there was a way for us to be fully present in our world in a loving, caring, meaningful way But at the same time, in a way where we didn't have to compromise our identity, where we didn't have to compromise the fact that we are the loved, holy, renewed people of God and we didn't lose our integrity in the process. These are some of the things I want us to consider as we look at this passage here in Revelation chapter 2. And, and this letter to the church in Thyatira from Jesus. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out this passage in, in a similar way as we've looked at it, uh, these, these letters previously. The first thing that we see is a reminder from Jesus of who he is. The second thing, anyone been paying attention in the last few weeks? What would the second be? Encouragement. Great. Third? Warning. And then last? A promise. Beautiful. Oh, you had him up there, didn't you? Okay. Jeez. Okay. First, let's look at the reminder. Look at me in verse 18. And the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What does that mean? Well, A little bit of history. Thyatira was a city that was positioned between more significant cities. And it was known for, and it was notorious, really, for its really strong trade guilds. Trade guilds were essentially like unions that networked uh, tradesmen together. And the most notable trade represented in Thyatira was its metalworking. This is what they were known for. So Napa is known for its grapes. Gilroy is known for its garlic. At one time, we were known for asparagus, and Thyatira was known for its metalworking. Like, that was its thing. Welcome to the metalworking capital of the world. And what they did was they specialized in two particular forms of metal, copper and bronze. So, when Jesus describes himself in terms of fire and bronze, he's speaking their language. He's talking to them in a way where they're going to begin to understand what he is describing here. Additionally, here in Thyatira, they were known for minting a common Roman coin that was in circulation at the time on one side was stamped the image of the emperor who in these parts at this time was known as the son of God. In fact, many of these coins would actually have that inscription, the son of God. And then on the flip side of the coin was the patron god Apollo, who uh, was the the, the god of the fiery sun. So consider this. On one side of the coin, the one who claims to be the son of God, the other one who claims to be the, the, the god of the fiery sun. So... When Jesus says that he is the son of God with eyes like fire and feet like bronze, he's not just reminding the church of who he is. He is directly challenging some of the things that are present here in the city. Jesus is directly confronting the status quo and undermining the claims of the emperor and the Greco-Roman gods. Like Jesus is throwing everything under the bus and saying, I am better. I am what all these things point to Uh, gosh okay so Thyatira being this this place of prominent prominent trading outpost status and wealth were ultimate okay so the old Wu-Tang phrase was was applying here cash rules everything around me cash was king and Jesus comes to remind them no actually I am king the church needs to with at this point is what is more meaningful? What is most meaningful? Is it coins with lifeless figures stamped on them, or is it the voice in the presence of the Almighty God? What's going to be most important in your life? What is going to be most important in your community? These lifeless images or me, the living God? And the reason this would have been so significant was that a city, in a city dominated by these trade guilds, to be a Christian with these biblical values and these very distinct uh, convictions would often put the church at odds with the practices and the ideas of these trade guilds and some of the practices that occurred at their parties and the ways that they communed and that sort of thing. So like depicted in the movies or maybe even unfortunately as some here have experienced to be well connected and to get opportunities in this town was determined by who you would jump in bed with, literally and figuratively. It meant people would have to participate in these extremely dehumanizing acts to, in order to get ahead, in order to find their status and their place in society. And so think about it, what we're seeing exposed in Hollywood in the 21st century, what, what it seems to be popping up on the news almost on a weekly basis where sex has been leveraged for status and opportunity, where the powerful prey on the weak and those who are seeking a place. This was alive and well in Thyatira, and this was a culturally acceptable thing. This is just the way it worked around here. And so the pressure on God's people to tolerate certain things was very heavy on them, especially if it meant their livelihood was on the line. This wasn't a theoretical thing that they were against. This was going to be something that could ultimately cost them their job and cost them their status and cost them their financial future. And so, Jesus' statement about himself, in this statement, he is reminding his church your economic status does not determine your worth. I do. And your financial stability does not determine your future. I do. And, and, and who you give your body to does not get you where you think you need to go. I do. I do. And what he's reminding them of, is, is this, under this claim of the Son of God with these eyes of fire that sees, he's essentially saying, you don't ultimately answer to your cravings, or to your lovers, or to your bosses, or to your, or to your unions. You answer to me. The Son of God with eyes of fire and feet like bronze. Let's look secondly at the encouragement. We need some encouragement. Very similar to the other letters that we see here, Jesus then moves to an encouragement, a very clear uh, contextual encouragement to the church here in Thyatira. Look with me in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, there's something meaningful in, in, in these words, I know your works, I see your works, and it seems to be connected with this, these trade guilds, or more specifically, the metalworking that was present in this city. Jesus is showing the church that as these tradesmen continue to like hammer away at their art and they create these beautiful works of bronze and these beautiful works of copper, what Jesus is saying is you too are being formed. In fact, he's saying your latter works are exceeding the former. In other words, it's not about the glory days. There's no need for nostalgia for you because your brilliance today is outshining your early years. The, the beauty of this community is evident to all around. This is a beautiful church. Reality, what displays God's brilliance and his beauty into the world? Well, it's what he commends here to the church. It's love, sacrificial love, puts the needs of others before ourselves. It's faith, resolved to trust Jesus in the midst of shaky times. It's service. We're not known by our swagger. We are known by our humble service. And it's patient endurance. It's putting our heads down and continuing to be faithful in the moments where we want to give up. We faithfully and patiently endure. Those are the virtues that far exceed tolerance, by the way. Love, faith, service, patience. And here's at the heart of this encouragement. Not only are you guys doing good works, he's saying, you are the good work. It's not just you're doing good works, you are the good work. Look with me elsewhere in scriptures in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his what? His workmanship. In the original language, it's poema. It means a, cre- a creative rendering, his art. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. God's people, write this down, God's people are God's art. That's what we are for the believer. Your life, your heart, your mind, your body, all of it. It's all his workmanship that is intended to display his beauty and his glory to the world around us. No matter how much ugliness that you have welcomed into your life, no matter how many scars you carry around to this day, if you are a child of God, listen to me, you are destined for beauty. Listen to this quote I, I came across from an artist named Lecrae. He said, just all the hip-hop references today, I got one more later too, be listening for it. Yes, I am a Christian. Yes, I make hypocritical decisions. Yes, I fall. I stumble. I struggle. I am a mess. Can I get an amen? Amen. But I am God's mess, and he can turn a mess into a masterpiece. Amen. Amen. It's going to be weird for a couple weeks, and then we'll, we'll just get the feel of it. Um, but this is, this is my hope for my life. Right? That God is somehow able to take a mess of a man and a mess of a community, no offense, and make something beautiful out of it. And that's what he does. That's what he did. That's what he continues to do. Now you may be asking, what does it matter what I do with my life now? Here's a question I get often asked as a pastor. What does it matter what I do with my body? What does it matter if, why does it matter if I compromise over here or over here? It matters because, and if we don't get this, we're going to miss it completely, it matters because you are his workmanship. One who has been assigned great value. See, the Bible says that you are a temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit, that you were purchased with a price, that Jesus literally laid down his life on the cross and shed his blood to obtain you. And so because of that, there's nothing casual or trivial about your life now. Because you've been purchased by the valuable blood of Jesus Christ, there's nothing trivial or casual about you. There are no, therefore, casual relationships. There are no casual times. There are no casual thoughts. There are no casual investments. There is no casual sex. You are his workmanship. There is nothing casual about you. And so he links what he instructs them to first, who they are. Let's look, uh, look thirdly at the warning, verses 20 through 23. We get, we get to Jezebel. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. He even gives the Jezebels time to repent. But, he, uh, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality going on to say, Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. All right. So a little bit of context about Jezebel. Jezebel. The idea that Jezebel was an actual woman in the first century church of Thyatira is wildly debated. In fact, many commentators believe that it's not actually a person present at this time. And what happens is it seems that John is doing something similar to what he did in the previous letter with Balaam and Balak and those sort of things. So here's what I believe is happening here, but we don't know for certain. Jezebel is symbolic of a teaching and a practice, or you could say a spirit that was present in the church. And what, what John is doing is he's linking this teaching and this idea and this value system in the church in the first century back to an account in the Old Testament that took place hundreds and hundreds of years before. So we don't know if she was a real woman in the first century, but what we do know is she was a real woman before that. And in the Old Testament, in the books of First and Second Kings, we read about this historic woman named Jezebel, who was the wife of a king named Ahab. And she was this fierce woman. And she was a dominating force who murdered and destroyed. She caused some of the bravest kings and bravest prophets to cower in her presence. And what she would do is leverage fear in order to manipulate men's hearts to move them towards her agenda. And she was bent on nothing less than turning the hearts of Israel away from Yahweh, their covenant God, to worshiping idols. That, at the end of the day, is what got her out of bed. And so when it came time for her reckoning, in 2 Kings chapter 9, it records that she put on her makeup, literally it says she painted her eyes, And she put up her hair, and she got all dolled up. And she sat seductively in a window, waiting for the man that she knew was coming to execute her. And as she's sitting there, just like, imagine me doing my best seductive pose here, uh, (laughs) leaning out a window. Um, And a man that has come to execute her approaches, she essentially asks this, do you come in peace? And in her last-ditch effort, in order to spare her life and to maintain this destructive presence in Israel was to put on the sexual charm. And she's hoping to seduce her way out of it. The interesting thing about the story is it ended up being eunuchs that throw her out the window. I won't get too graphic, but it were the individuals that would not benefit from that seduction there. And she gets thrown out the window. So. Here's your happy Sunday school story for the day. But what Jesus seems to be saying to the church, and I promise I'm tying it up here, what Jesus seems to be saying is you took the bait. Guys, you took the bait. You fell for it. And there's a teaching present in your church that needs to be uprooted and destroyed, but one that has subtly been seducing you. And the teaching... I guess pun intended here, was called the deep knowledge, the deep knowledge of Satan. And it went something like this, that it does, you know, what what matters most in your life is your spiritual life. All the physical stuff, like your body, and and like who you sleep with, and what you do at these parties, and these idle practices, it involves the fleshly stuff, but You know, what matters more is the internal woman, the internal man. And and so one day, we're going to separate from this mortal flesh. We're going to cast it off, and it's not going to really matter. And we're going to go float away to be these disembodied spirits with God forever. Here's the problem. That's not what the Bible says. Christ rose from the grave, not just spiritually, but bodily, in order to redeem us spiritually and physically. And this came to be known later as the Gnostic heresy. And Jesus is saying, this thinking, this thought process... It's like a disease in your midst, and it's destroying your church. And he's saying it doesn't matter how much you doll up that church. It doesn't matter how many good works you have. Jesus said, I don't care how much money you give away to the poor, how many potlucks you have, how much you've opened up the church, how inclusive you are called by the community. It doesn't matter to me because this disease is killing you from the inside out, and no amount of good works is going to be able to save you. Jesus is saying it's seducing you literally to death. It puts on the charm. It appeals to your lust. It feels right. It feels natural. And you tolerate this way of living, but you shouldn't. I'm reminded of a scene from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. And there's this character that's a ghost. And he's got this pet red lizard on his shoulder. And that lizard is intended to represent this, this ghost's sin. And he's constantly scolding this pet lizard, telling it to be quiet. And it's making his life miserable. And so the scene picks up here. A mighty angel approaches the man and says, Would you like me to take away that lizard for you and make it quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, 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 look out, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed, said the angel? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. That's the only way, said the angel. His burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. No, there's no time. May I kill it? Well, please, I I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, in fact, he's gone to sleep on his own. I'm sure it's going to be all right now. Thank you so very much. May I kill it? Honestly, I I don't think that that's necessary. I'm sure that I'm going to be able to keep it in order. I, I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. And the angel says the gradual process is of no use at all. And more excuses are given and more excuses. And then we begin to overhear the lizard wake up and he's whispering in the man's ear. And it says, suddenly the lizard began chattering loudly. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. I'll be so good. I admit, sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. And the angel asks again, so I do, do I have your permission? And the man responds, you're right. It'd be better to be dead than to live with this creature. And the angel says, uh, so do I have your permission again? And you hear the man say, gosh, just get on with it. Get it over with. As he yells out loudly, and yet what we hear is he's whispering to himself, God, help me, God, help me. And what I think this illustrates for us is that for many of us, we want the slow approach to freedom and healing. We're content to tolerate these destructive things in our lives and to tolerate destructive things in our community, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. This is, like a, this is like cancer, and, and this is like cancer treatment, and I'm going to move far more aggressively than you would ever request for yourself in order that you may live. And what Jesus is essentially saying, I didn't come to bring tolerance. I came to bring transformation, and I came to kill the thing that's slowly killing you. And Jesus warns, if you continue to resist his healing, you will suffer that decision. And here's the irony that's laid out in this passage. It's that the bed of seduction will then become the bed of sickness. The bed of pleasure will then become the bed of your greatest grief. And isn't this the way it works in life? The thing that we thought would bring so much joy and so much freedom and so much pleasure if we just compromised a little bit becomes the thing that brings the most agony and grief to our soul, leaving us asking, why did I ever do that? Let's look finally at the promise. Verses 24 through 29. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. I love this picture of a gracious Jesus. I'm not here to lay on burdens. I'm here to free you. Only hold fast to what uh, you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I'm going to give authority over the nations, and I'll and, and he will rule them with an iron rod, a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so to those who have Missed out on promotions and those who have missed out on romantic relationships and those who have missed out on opportunities and friendship circles and fill in the blank because they refused to compromise, because they, they refuse to, 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 to tolerate things in order to get where they thought they needed to be. Here's the promise that Jesus is making. You may be missing out now, but just you wait until you see what I have in store for you. I'm acknowledging you are missing out. You may be on the fringe. You may suffer for these decisions. But hang on. Trust me, your future is bright. To the ones who hold fast and stay the course, there's a twofold promise. The first is the promise that the church is going to rule with Jesus Christ. And here, Jesus uses the symbolic imagery in order to explain authority. But here's the interesting thing Jesus is not highlighting the authority he has, Jesus is highlighting the authority that he shares with us. He says, You will rule the nations, you will have a place at my council. In other words, you will have a place of status. This is like the great reversal. You're at the bottom. You are the outcasts of of your community. You are pushed aside, but you will be seated with me in the heavenly places, and you will rule and reign with me. No matter where you find yourself as the church, and here it is, we all will be singing, started at the bottom, now we're here, and that's all for me today. Amen. He promises us also the morning star. Promises the morning star. Now, we have to read ahead in Revelation, but what we, what we see in Revelation 22 is that when Jesus is describing himself, he describes himself as the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And so what is the morning star? The morning star is Jesus. He not only shares with us his identity, he not only shares with us his authority, he shares with us himself. And this is the great reward of Christianity. It doesn't get better than this. And set your sights on nothing lower than this. What we get out of this thing is none other than the crucified and risen Christ. The king is our reward. Presence with him is our delight. And understanding this promise is is key to what Jesus is, is trying to communicate here. If you take this to heart, if you apply this to your life, then you will find that you are marked less and less by tolerance and more and more by integrity and faithfulness. You will discover that there's a way to be present and engaged in this world where we are loving, where we are faithful, where we are serving and compassionate and patient, and yet we can do it without compromise, not being consumed by the world that we seek to serve. And this is how. The more you cherish the authority and the intimacy that is offered to us in Jesus Christ, the less you're going to be looking for it amongst the people around you. When we are filled with Christ, there will be no room for any lesser authority and any lesser intimacy. And when we're filled with this all-satisfying Christ, we'll be less and less tempted to compromise and less and less tempted to tolerate these things that are destructive in our lives. Reality, what are we and who are we? We are the workmanship of Jesus Christ, destined for beauty. And we are now those who have been sent into our city to display his beauty and his brilliance and his goodness by the power of his overcoming spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...